0: Well, we are back. We have another week behind us, another week in the market, and that means another, let's take a look here. This is the one week view, another $928.53 made. Past five days, this portfolio, my portfolio has gone up nearly $1,000, $930 in the past five business days. That's pretty good. In fact, I think it's amazing that I've discovered upon this stock market thing where You know, I don't know everything about it. But what I do know is it's this magical thing where you go and you simply deposit money into it. And then you watch as this green number of how much money you're making goes up and up and up every single day, day after day, week after week, month after month. That's the impression I'm starting to get is that this is just the easiest money ever to be made. You simply put money in. It doesn't matter too much of what you buy as long as you pick pretty solid companies that have good fundamentals. You buy companies that either raise their dividends continually, companies that have good financing or or companies that have good balance sheets and prospects with the products they sell. And then you simply watch as all your holdings gain in value every single week, week after week. That's what I'm starting to be conditioned to believe with this stock market. In fact, if I go and I look at a a bigger scale here, let's go ahead, this is the S&P 500. Look at the five-year chart here. There's not many times that you could buy and really lose any money. In fact, you could pick and you could put all your money in on the very lowest day of the past five years and you'd be up considerably since then. Just the past couple months, since October 7th, we're up 13%. That's since October of last year, we're up 13%. The stock market average is somewhere like 7 or 8% over the past 40 years. And just in a couple months, we're up 13%. So this has been a crazy thing to see. But part of this is that I want to sound an an alarm, a warning of some sort, that you don't condition yourself to believing this is the direction it's going to go indefinitely, that this is how this is going to continue to go. The stock market will not continue to go up forever. These numbers that you're seeing, these huge market gains week after week and day after day at some point, we're going to see the opposite happen. At some point, we're going to see a pullback. I've been investing in this portfolio for a little over two years. Right at the beginning of 2018 is when I started and I put the first $100 in. And since then, I've been the beneficiary of investing during a bull run, when the market typically goes up day after day and week after week. And I've watched the money and the gains roll in day after day and week after week. In fact, at no point in this, except for one time period, was I actually concerned that we were going to see a very significant pullback. And that was at the beginning of 2019, the end of 2018. If I go back to the five years here, right about here, at the end of September in 2018, things started to go down. The stock market dropped seven to 9% in just a few days went down 9%. That's a lot of people's gains being wiped away, 9% decrease. And then it went up a little bit. Some people were buying the dip. Some people are buying in, they're waiting for this big drop. And then it continued to drop until it went down about 19%. If I highlighted the absolute high to the absolute low here, it went down about 19%. So right on that 20% where it's defined that we are now in a bear market. Some people say this is a bear market. Some people say this was too quick. It doesn't really count as a bear market. I remember when this was happening. This was just a little bit over a year ago. That's when all the stories about recession started. That's when all the stories about people getting out of the market started. This little area right here that I have highlighted caused a significant amount of concern and alarm to investors. And the people that sold out right there, they sold out at the worst time. It quickly recovered afterwards. And since has gone up to all new highs, we're past 3,300 in the S&P 500. So I look at this and I I think it's interesting. I see the stock market. It's breaking records. You know, it's going up day after day, week after week, and it makes investors very excited, makes them feel validated in the decision you're making. Because if you decide to put money in and you buy something and it's for the purposes of investing, so you want it to eventually go up in value. And then every single day it's going up in value. What that can do is in your mind, validate the decisions you're making. You can say, Well, I invested in it, I purchased it, it went up in value quickly, so I made a good decision. And I don't really love that train of thought. I don't like thinking that way because what is implied with that train of thought is that if you bought a company at a fair price and then the market goes down, which it eventually will go down, we will have another time where it drops 10, 20, 30, maybe even more. There's times where the stock market drops a lot. Those are called bear markets. When that happens, you'll feel like your decision is invalidated. Like you made an incorrect decision in purchasing these companies. So it's a double-edged sword. If you feel like market gains and having that every single day validates the decisions you're making, you're going to feel invalidated when you start to see red numbers. When week after week, you see the stocks that you purchase going down. What I choose to look at is the companies that I'm buying, the price that i'm buying them at they have decent pe ratios if they're really solid companies with large moats that offer great products and have a a good future ones like disney costco home depot target these are what i think are very solid companies i don't really care what other people value them at. in fact if more people are valuing them really highly and purchasing them up and up and up That works to my disadvantage. I would rather have Disney and Costco and Home Depot drop in price so that my dividends, the payments that I'm getting, can purchase more of these companies. So every day when my portfolio goes up and up and up in market gains, I look at it and go, man, I I, kind of wish the market would slow down. I wish that we had another time where it dropped 10, 15%. It would make me more excited to put my purchases in. When I see it going up every single week after week, I don't feel really validated in my decisions as much as I feel like I wish it was going the opposite way. I wish it was going a little bit cheaper so that I could get companies that I already know are really solid companies at a cheaper price. I don't need market gains to show me that I'm making the right decision. I'm pretty confident in the companies that I'm buying that they are great assets that I wanna own. Now, the thing that I do stake a little bit of validation on, the thing that I do look as, as, a, I think, a more solid indicator is the dividends being gained. I look at the amount of earned dividends that I have, this amount of cash flow, this passive income stream is something that's not as closely tied to the market. And you know that I look at this on a month by month basis, but this is what I'll continue to look at when the market decides to go down. Okay. That's great. I'll continue to purchase these companies that I think are really solid companies. And I'll be able to track the amount of money that I'm making in dividends, the passive income stream that I'm growing. So either way, whether the market continues up or down, I'm going to continue buying shares in these companies. I'm going to continue dollar cost averaging in, but I just wanted to start by signaling you know, something for you guys to look at. If you're somewhat new to investing, realize that the market will go down at some point. And that's not something to be concerned about. That's a time when you should try to pick up more shares. Now, as far as news, I'll give you a quick summary of what I'm going to be talking about. So we have Boeing that is posting negative net orders in 2019. So they lost 87 orders for the total of 2019. They didn't have a good year last year. I want to talk about this company, whether it's a good buy or one that we should be minimizing our stake in. I also want to talk about Comcast. They have decided that they're going to enter the streaming wars. They have a a service called Peacock that has three different pricing tiers. I'm going to be going over this and see what their strategy is, what their aim is with this and how it stacks up with the other competitors. And then there's a couple tech acquisitions that I want to talk about. So we have Visa buying a company called Plaid for $5.3 billion. I think this is a good buy. We have PayPal buying honey for $4 billion. I think that this is not a great buy. So I'm going to be explaining each one of these acquisitions, what I think about them in detail. And then of course, we have a lot of questions and comments to get to more talk about debt. A lot of questions on that kind of a continuation from the previous episode. Okay, so first of all, let's start off with a portfolio update. So this is my personal portfolio. There's a link in the description of the video that will point you to this portfolio so you can look at any company in it. Regardless, like I said, the the market's only going in one direction. We have it going up. That's the direction it's decided it wants to go. And it doesn't seem like any news concerns the market. No news really concerns investors. It's pretty incredible that in the last couple months, the market has gone up something like 15% considering the news that we've had. Let me go ahead and give just a quick summary of some different events that have happened in the past month. So just to go through a couple of them, and this isn't a comprehensive list of the news. We have one thing the the president is, you know, he was impeached. They're sending the articles of impeachment to the Senate. So it probably won't go through the Senate, but regardless not exactly a great event to be having happen in politics. We have the US killing what is a, a designated terrorist, the top Iranian general causing the biggest international event to have happened in at least the last two years. We have an entire political party where the top candidates from it, they're either openly socialist that have expressly targeted trades on Wall Street as something they want to tax in order to fund different expenditures, or candidates that have made a an entire campaign against wealth and accumulation of wealth. So... We have that going on. And in the meantime, we have a deficit that year after year, month after month, it grows. A growing deficit, meaning that the amount of money the government is spending exceeds what it's taking in year over year. So you think any one of these independently would be bringing downward pressure on the stock market. But regardless of all of that news, stocks continue to go up. They're only headed in one direction. With that, we've seen the price of the overall market go up as well. If I look at the S&P 500, here's a graph of the average PE ratio of the S&P 500. So all the holdings within it, this is like the the average of those different holdings. And right now at 25 it's quite a bit above its historical average. The mean is right around 15 to 16. So things are a little bit expensive right now as far as the overall general stock market's concerned. Now, this is a breakdown of what type of holdings you have, what type of portfolio you have constructed. Mine, I lean pretty conservative. Most of the holdings I have are pretty low PE ratios considering some of the tech companies and some of the companies out there that have very high PE ratios. For instance, I can take a look at Netflix. Netflix has a PE ratio of 108. So that's a pretty high PE ratio. We have other companies like Amazon. Amazon has a PE ratio of 83. I don't hold either of those companies. I do hold companies like, let's say, Microsoft. Microsoft's PE ratio is 31. So still pretty high. You know, it's it's above the market average, but it's not anywhere close to Netflix or Amazon's. And Microsoft is a tech company. Pretty innovative company doing really well, but yet their PE ratio is still only 31, despite other competitors having drastically higher PE ratios. Now, another holding I have is Disney. Disney has a PE ratio of 21. So this is a company that has theme parks, movies. They also have a streaming service that I think is going to be growing in the millions pretty rapidly with a 21 PE ratio, a little bit higher than Disney's historical average, but compare that to like Netflix, compare that to Amazon, substantially lower. So I think holdings like this are ones that at least have some margin of safety that even if the stock market goes down a lot, I'm not buying companies like Disney at incredibly high valuations. I'm continuing to look for the best deals that I find in the market. I wanna average into the companies that I still think have reasonable valuations. That's the portfolio that I've constructed. To be able to look at all my holdings, again, there's a link in the description of it. But either way, I'll keep giving updates and letting you guys know how this portfolio works and the type of returns that we're seeing. Okay, let's go ahead and jump into some news here. Let's start off with Boeing. Carl, we've got a number here that is going to be stunning to some people. The full-year earnings and deliveries out from Boeing. Remember, Airbus released last week. For all of 2019, Boeing had a negative number when it it comes to commercial airplane orders. That is to say, there were more cancellations than orders for commercial airplanes. That is the first time in decades that Boeing has had a negative number. It was negative 87. By comparison, Airbus last year racked up orders for 768. So Boeing's net amount of orders that they had for 2019, like he said, is negative 87. We compare that to Airbus and they had plus 768 orders in 2019. This is the only real competitor that they have right now. It's a duopoly. We might have China entering this space in years to come. So they're going to be entering aviation sometime down the road. But right now it's mostly a duopoly between Airbus, which is a European company and Boeing, which obviously is an American company. And what this has done with Boeing is not only caused this lack of plane orders, financial trouble, obviously there's been some reputation damage with Boeing, especially with the 737 MAX. There's a lot of people saying they'll never fly on this plane again even if it does get approved. So Boeing is facing this reputation damage on top of a lot of financial trouble. There's an article from a couple weeks back that goes into this, how Boeing needs more cash. They're running out of money. So it says that Boeing is considering raising debt as the max crisis takes its toll. Every single month this goes on is a billion dollars plus that Boeing loses, that Boeing is out. Further down in this, it explains the situation that Boeing's in right now. It says now alongside raising more debt, Boeing is also thinking of deferring some capital expenditures, freezing acquisition and cutting spending on research and development to preserve cash. People familiar with the possibility said you read through that they're freezing acquisitions, cutting spending on research and development, slowing down, deferring some of their capital expenditures. They are looking for money. Boeing is on a path where it's burning a lot of money every single month. Right here, we have a breakdown of Boeing's capital expenditures for the first quarter of 2020. So they're expected to pay billion in the first three months of 2020. And of that, they highlight the portion that's dividends. So that's an over $2 billion capital expenditure. So Boeing's in a situation where they don't want to lose shareholders. So they're still paying out these dividends, but they're doing it by taking on debt. And that's not the situation you want your companies to be in. You don't want them to be taking on debt to be able to pay shareholders dividends. So they're not in a good situation. As this continues on, they're going to have more downward pressure on their finances and the amount that they're paying in dividends Will come up in those conversations of where they can find capital. This puts a lot of pressure on Boeing. I think that they'll continue to pay their dividends in the future. I think it's a big priority for them. But if they're not able to turn this around soon within 2020, their dividend is becoming less and less safe. I think it's already in the unsafe category but I could see a dividend cut in the future if they're not able to turn this situation around soon. So it's a holding that I'm still gonna hold right now. If they do cut the dividend, I'm gonna be selling it, but I'm not gonna be really adding to this position right now. So this isn't one that I'm gonna be putting a lot of money in. Next up, we have Comcast entering the streaming business. They have their service called Peacock that has three different pricing tiers, and we're getting different opinions on this. This is great for consumers. I mean, who wouldn't want lots of content, less ads, easy to find. And the best part, Andrew, is as you watch, it gets smarter. <laughs> so it's going to learn what you like. And if you like watching CNBC clips or you like watching Saturday Night Live clips, you're going to get more of what you, the consumer, like watching. Okay, so-, so he thinks this will be great for consumers. More content, less advertisements. Comcast has really taken the most conservative safe approach to releasing this streaming service. Peacock will have a free version. It will have a $5 a month version where it will still have commercials, but it will have some more premium content on it. And then it will have a $10 premium content, no commercial version. So the idea is is that you just create a version of the product for every type of consumer, whether there's somebody that just wants it completely free and they'll look at all the free programming or somebody that wants the complete premium ad-free version for 10 bucks a month. And it's also a learning service. Now, of course, this is what all of them do. So Netflix is a learning service. As you watch different shows, it's supposed to recommend shows of similar interest to you. And YouTube does that the same thing with their homepage, similar content it recommends to you. YouTube TV does the same thing. Now they're saying Comcast is going to be doing the same thing with their service, having that algorithm automatically recommend similar content to what you like watching. So I think Comcast will do okay. They do have the free version that they'll earn ad revenue on. We'll be able to see when we get more details of how the service actually functions. I think the user interface and how well it's actually put together will be a huge role in what company does really well. So how well they make the apps and the user interface and how intuitive it is, is going to be a big deciding factor here. So a couple other news items I wanted to go over. These are acquisitions by tech companies acquiring other tech companies. We have Visa paying $5.3 billion to acquire Plaid, which I think is a really good deal. And then we have PayPal acquiring a company called Honey for $4 billion. So I'll start with Visa acquiring Plaid. I think that this was a really good acquisition. And the cost, $5.3 billion, that's a lot of money, but Plaid is a really good company. For people not familiar with what Plaid does, it's a tech company that helps you connect your bank account with other fine tech companies. They give examples of it. They have companies like Venmo, Betterment, and Coinbase, American Express, Acorns, M1 Finance also uses Plaid from what I've seen. The way that it works is they're the company that you search your bank, you type in your username and password. You're not typing that in for M1 Finance to store it. You know, you're not typing it in for Acorns to store it. This is Plaid. That's their integration that they created. It's all API driven and token driven. So they're not saving your passwords everywhere. And that makes it so that one company can focus on all the security. And then companies like M1 Finance and Betterment and Venmo, they don't need to focus on that security aspect. They don't need to deal with your bank account. Instead, they can push that over to Plaid. Say, you guys deal with this. You know, we'll integrate with you. And they have that whole problem solved. Then they can focus more on building out the unique aspects of their company. This is a fantastic company. A really good service. I can see why Visa would want to pick it up. This is going to be very valuable to Visa because not only are they going to be able to see where you spend your money and your shopping habits, but now they're going to be able to see your banking habits. They're going to be able to see what bank accounts you connect to what services. They're going to have access to all that information. And Visa, the more information they have, the more profitable of a company they're going to be. So I think that this naturally integrates really well with their service. Comparing Visa buying Plaid to PayPal buying Honey It's crazy to look at the differences between the two. They're roughly the same size of the deal. So Visa paid a little bit more for Plaid, but Plaid is a significantly more established, what I think is a more serious company. Honey is largely a browser extension. You've heard every YouTube video, they sponsor tons of videos and podcasts saying, hey, install our browser extension so we automatically add in coupon codes on your Amazon checkout. That's like the main thing for their company is saving some money on Amazon during checkout. Obviously, the play there is data. So they get to see data on what you're purchasing, the different purchasing habits that you have. That's how they make money. In exchange, they automatically put in coupon codes. So here it says, PayPal announced today it agreed to acquire Honey, Science Corporation, the maker of the deal-finding browser add-on mobile application for $4 billion, mostly cash. You know, this is really just difficult to wrap my head around, that PayPal would pay this much money for what is mostly a browser extension, a Chrome browser extension. I look at this and it has no moat honey is something so easily replaced by other browser extensions or competing companies it's so simple to disable a browser extension or uninstall it and switch to something else there's no sign up there's no login necessary you're not paying for it there's no real hook to keep you specifically to honey so the play here is that paypal is obviously paying for the data that honey can provide but the fact that they purchased for $4 billion, something that has no moat, I think is, is somewhat concerning. In fact, even on that note, we have Ryan Hutchins here, who is a political contributor. He did a tweet where he says, Amazon is telling shoppers the browser extension Honey that gives you coupon codes and other ways to save is malware. PayPal bought Honey in November for $4 billion. That's one extensive piece of malware. I think he means that that's one expensive piece of malware. Either way, he has a screenshot here of the warning that Amazon is giving against Honey. Honey's browser extension is a security risk. Honey tracks your private shopping behavior, collects data like your order history and items saved, and can read or change any of the data on any website you visit. To keep your data private and secure, uninstall this extension immediately. Learn how to uninstall. Please note that all the same Amazon offers, deals, and coupons are available without this extension installed. That is an extremely damning message to have for Honey right? This is something that PayPal paid $4 billion for the browser extension. Mostly what I would see is people use it for Amazon. Everybody that pitches it, everybody that goes out and promotes this product is saying you can save money on Amazon. And then Amazon puts at the top of their website, if you have this browser extension installed, they put this yellow security warning It has a detailed explanation of why you should uninstall it. It goes through detailing every part of it and explaining why you should uninstall it. And then it gives you instructions of how to uninstall it. This just more than shows when you're looking at companies to acquire or companies to invest in, you want them to have a moat. You want them to have a level of security where competitors like Amazon can't shut down your product by putting out one little message. So obviously Amazon has the power if they really wanted to, to destroy honey. If they had a motive to do that, they could continue to put this message on and scare everybody out of using this app. So they can do this for free. They can put this message up for free and undo what Honey has likely spent hundreds of millions of dollars advertising and building up over the years. So this just shows how important having a good mode is. I would have much rather seen PayPal try to pick up a a quality company like Stripe, or something that just has solid fundamentals would be very difficult to replicate and is growing rapidly. Honey's Not a Purchase, I think, was a great one for them. Okay, let's get to some questions here. You can email me at josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com. You can also message me on my Twitter or Instagram. Both of them are linked in the description of this video. The first one is from Carrie. Carrie says, I really enjoy your channel. However, Why do all financial guys like yourself beat down auto sales? The auto industry is a vital part of the economic machine. I never hear anyone say don't buy a 70-inch television or the latest LeBron James shoes. Do you realize the contribution that the auto industry adds to our economy? What about the medical industry as a whole? That is a true ripoff in our economy. Medical costs, prescription drug costs, etc. markups in medical industry is by far the greatest injustice in America. While some Americans may be able to buy some sort of car to get from point A to point B that is super cheap or a beater, the medical industry controls your life and nobody has any choice of buying a beater car, prescription drug, or medical procedure. I would think that medical debt payments are outpacing most costs in America. Okay, Kerry. So obviously this is a reference to the previous episode I did. It's called The Debt Cycle. I talk primarily about debt and I think big things that prevent people from being able to generate wealth in their life. Now, I'll just go through some of your comment here. You say, I never hear anyone say, don't buy a 70-inch television or those latest LeBron James shoes. Uh, That's true. Most financial channels, you know, people like me are not going to be warning against TVs or shoes per se, but let's back up here for a second. So I think that there's three main categories that people can get in trouble with debt. One of them is student loans. Obviously, some people do really well. I'd say most people that go to college, they get a good value of that if they get a decent degree and they take out a moderate amount of student loans. You know, the minimal that they take out, the better. But that's one area that people get in a lot of debt more than they need is student loans. The next I would say is auto loans. So again, people taking out more money than they need for a vehicle, they're strapped with these large payments, that can get people in trouble. Another big form of debt is credit card debt. And financial channels talk about credit card debt all the time. Look at Dave Ramsey. He's constantly talking about cutting up credit cards. I would put 70-inch television, LeBron James shoes under credit card debt. The way people would be able to afford to buy a television that they can't afford or shoes that they can't afford is they do that through an instrument that allows them to take out consumer debt, i.e. a credit card. So the way that you would be able to buy lots of shoes and buy lots of consumer goods that you cannot afford is through a credit card. And if you are spending more than you can afford with a credit card, you absolutely should cut it up. It's not working in your favor. You're paying interest on your credit card. So the criticism that a financial channel or somebody like me wouldn't tell you to not buy a 70-inch TV or not buy a lot of shoes, I absolutely would. The big overriding theme here is to not buy something that you can't afford. And the way that you know that you're buying something that you can't afford is if you're purchasing it through debt. If the reason that you can afford a 70-inch television is only because you have a credit card, that you couldn't pay for it through any other method except for a credit card, you know that you're buying something you can't afford. Same thing with LeBron James shoes. The only reason you can afford these is because you have a line of credit That means you can't afford it. Now, if you have $30,000 in your bank account and you go out and buy some LeBron James shoes on a credit card, despite the fact that you're buying it with a debt instrument, you can afford it. You have more money in savings than you are spending on those shoes. So you're not doing something irresponsible there. The problem with auto loans in particular is they're almost always done in a way where people are buying them when they can't afford them. So there's people that have $5,000 in their bank account and they're buying $35,000 vehicles. They are buying something that they do not have enough money for. They're having to afford that through debt. So there is a distinction there. Financial channels would absolutely tell you not to buy all those consumer goods if you're purchasing them with other people's money that you can't afford to back up yourself. Now, in the next part of your comment, you bring in medical costs. You know, you say medical costs are it's a bigger concern than the auto industry. Markups in the medical industry is by far the greatest injustice in America. So you're saying, you know, if medical costs are such a bigger deal, why am I not focusing on that instead of the auto industry? The answer of that is pretty simple. People have very little to no control over medical costs. So going on about how expensive medicine is, how does that serve the viewer? How does that make it so that anybody listening to this can make any decision in their life that will better them by just pointing out problems in America? This is the same reason I don't focus on politics. You can go out and point out all these different problems, but unless you actually have some control over solving them, all you're doing is causing unnecessary anxiety and negativity in people's lives that doesn't better their situation at all. So the reason that even though medical costs are a bigger deal, you know, it's a bigger injustice than anything that has to do with auto sales. The reason that I focus on auto sales is because we have direct control over the amount of auto loans we take. Those are decisions we make that we have 100% influence on the type of loans we're taking out. We have no such influence over our medical costs. Like you say, they assign the prices, they can inflate the prices. There's not much we can do about that. If this was a channel where I just complained about different topics and brought up different problems, there's a million channels that do that. There's so many political channels where you'll have people just highlight issues with the world, talk about how wrong this thing is, and it gets people stirred up and angry about stuff, but it doesn't help them at all. My goal is to actually help people better their financial future, put them on a better track where five years from now, they're going to have more wealth than they do today. The thing that you have more influence over is auto sales. That's the reason that I focus on it. And I just want to mention, Kerry, that my goal is not to, to bash any industry or or people working in certain industries. I know there's people listening that work for auto sales and you know they work at car, car dealerships. I don't have any problem with that. What I'm against is, generally speaking, people purchasing things that they cannot afford. Overall, I think that that's a bad idea. The only reason that that would be a good idea is if it's something where the asset you're purchasing appreciates in value. So if you're buying a home, obviously cannot afford to buy a home in cash in most situations, but that is an appreciating asset. Cars are heavily depreciating. From the moment you purchase them, they are going down in value and they're very expensive at the same time. So I don't have any problem for people purchasing vehicles that they can afford. When I see multimillionaires buying Range Rovers, I don't see any problem with that. They can afford the vehicle. They're not doing anything irresponsible. What I don't like seeing is people that have $10,000 in savings buying $50,000 cars, buying $30,000 cars, strapping themselves to a monthly payment that they're going to have for five to seven years. So... I think that that's destructive to their wealth. I'm sorry if that's how a lot of vehicles are sold and if that hurts business, but I'm not here to protect the auto industry at the expense of people that get wrapped up in these loans. That's not what I plan on doing. Brandon says, Joseph, first, I'd like to tell you that your podcast is addicting. You have the ability to make 50 minutes feel like 15. 15. Um, I appreciate that, Brandon. That's kind of you to say. He says, with the introduction of all these popular robo-investment apps, Stash, Acorns, Wealthfront, et cetera, almost anyone can put money into the market through ETFs. Conversely, it is even easier to remove your money through these apps. I fear that in the case of a large market crash, all these new investors will be quick to withdraw all their money, leading to, well, a larger market crash. Please share your thoughts. What do you think would happen? Yeah, Brandon, I've thought about this before. The the ease of investing, it's become so much easier to invest just in the past five years. Like all the apps that you laid out, Stash, Acorns, Wellfront, uh, M1 Finance, Robinhood, all these ones, they make it so much easier to put your money into the market and take it out. Your fear of new investors that become conditioned to the market always moving up, being frightened when it moves downwards is the same thing I was highlighting at the beginning of this episode. I share the same fear. That new investors that have weak stomachs, as soon as the market turns downwards, they're going to be second guessing everything. They're going to be selling out. They're going to lock in their losses by selling after the market goes down a significant amount. So that's a big fear I have. But the reason why I have it is different. I'm afraid that they're just going to lock in losses and lose a lot of money, that these new investors using apps like M1 Finance and Wealthfront and Acorns and Stash won't have the stomach to go through a major pullback. So I don't want to see them lose a lot of money. The fear that you have that they're going to be contributing to a market crash and making it much worse. I don't think that that's an issue at all. So the reason why is is the amount of capital that these new investors have to work with is not enough to, to really move the needle. So you could add up all the assets under management of Stash, Acorns, Wealthfront, Robinhood, M1 Finance, and that doesn't even touch some of the bigger players. If you look at BlackRock or Vanguard, These companies that are managing, you know, entire school districts and companies 401ks, everybody in all of these apps could sell one hundred percent of their holdings and it would barely move the needle. So I don't have any fears of like the the new apps that make it easier to invest contributing to a major pullback. I don't think that they're gonna contribute to it at all. My fear is that new investors, they've only seen the market move up. They're gonna be very frightened when it moves down at all, when it does something normal, when we have a recession, when we have a pullback. That is normal market behavior. They're going to think it's abnormal and that it's scary. They're going to sell out and lock in losses. So yeah, I have that same fear, but for completely different reasons. Okay. Michael says, hi, Joseph Michael here. I love your show. I started investing thanks to your videos. I think you're doing a great job. Keep it up. I appreciate that, Michael. He says, some thoughts crossed my mind the other day and I wanted to ask them to you. If you had $10 million sitting in a bank account and you wanted to fully invest them, how would you do it? Like, would you feed them into your portfolio at once, or would you take a small amount and invest them over time? For example, investing $25,000 a week would take you 400 weeks, approximately 7.5 years to invest all of it. You would miss that juicy 4 to 5% annual return on your $10 million in dividends, but if the market crashed for some reason, your portfolio value would not go down as much as if it was invested the whole amount at once. Another thing that crossed my mind is if you would feed $25,000 a week until you hit 10 million, would you meanwhile put the rest of your cash in any long-term fund to keep it with the market? Thanks again for your videos. Great content, Michael. All right, Michael. So the hypothetical, if I was granted $10 million that is post-tax, I just have that amount of money. uh, What would I do with it? What actions would I take? So realistically, um, I'd probably put, $400,000, $500,000 uh four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars in an FDIC insured high yield savings account. That would be one chunk of it. The next, I would not mess with this twenty-five thousand dollars a week until I get to ten million. I would just put the rest of the nine and a half million in the market. So the reason why is maybe there's a crash next year. I don't think it would matter that much. If you put it in a really good diversified portfolio, the amount that you would be yielding in dividends and interest, let's assume that you have a dividend yield, you have $9.5 million in it. What is that, around $350,000 a year that you're getting just in dividend yield? That means that you could safely live off of $200,000 a year in passive income while having $150,000 in passive income reinvested back into your portfolio. So not only are you living what I think is a a decent life, $200,000 a year, that's a pretty good life that you're living financially financially while continuing to build up your portfolio in the background. So that's probably what I would do. I'd be living on a lower amount of yield. I'd be living on one hundred fifty to $200,000 and reinvesting the rest of that. And then if I really had $10 million, I might take $1 million of it and, and spend it on real assets. So real estate, I'd probably buy some rentals and some things around my area that I could manage. So that would be another thing I'd do with it. But No, I think at that point, I wouldn't be dollar cost averaging into the market. I'd be putting that money to work right away. I'd be collecting those dividends, living that life and having it passively grow in the background. Okay, well, that's going to be it for this episode. If you guys want to hang out and chat, there is a Patreon link and it gives you access to a discord. Other than that, I'll be talking to you guys next time.